Ancient sources. When I say ancient sources, I don't just mean uh, Christian sources like the Gospels, but even non-Christian sources like uh, the, the Jewish author Josephus all agree that Jesus of Nazareth performed a number of miracles during his ministries. Now, his followers, of course, attributed those miracles to God. His enemies and his critics argued that they were works of the devil. But here's the important thing. They both agreed that Rabbi Jesus was a miracle worker who healed people, who was able to do extraordinary things. Now, four of the miracles that Jesus performed held special importance in the ancient world. For long centuries, the people of Israel had been waiting for a Messiah. A Messiah descended from King David, promised by God, who would bring salvation to their nation. The rabbis taught that the people would uh, know that the Messiah had actually come because he would be able to perform four otherwise impossible, uniquely messianic miracles that no one else had ever done and no one else was capable of doing. This morning's message, as we continue our series on Rabbi Jesus, I want to look at a couple of questions. What were those four messianic miracles? What made them special? And what do they have to teach us about the wonders that God wants to work in our lives today. The first of the four Messianic miracles, and what I want to do in this message is kind of look at them in the order in which they actually occurred, according to the Gospels. The first of the four Messianic miracles was the healing of a Jewish leper. The healing of a Jewish leper. Uh, The people of Israel were absolutely terrified, horrified, Um, by leprosy. Because in addition to being a debilitating, horrifically disfiguring disease, because of the strict quarantine laws that were laid out in the book of Leviticus, those who had it suffered doubly. Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkept, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean, They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. These people suffered doubly because not only was it a painful, horrible, disfiguring disease, it cut them off from their loved ones. It cut them off from the ability to to worship in the temple, to, to actually obey and fulfill the laws of God. And it led them to being treated as monstrous outcasts from their communities. Now, leprosy appeared in two different forms. The worst and most dangerous was called leprotomous leprosy. This is actually a photograph from the uh, early 1900s that was taken in the Middle East of a a group of of people who were suffering from, from leprosy. Unlike tuberculoid leprosy, which was kind of the, the, lesser, uh, the less problematic form of leprosy. Um, and it was a less problematic because uh, an untreated person could actually recover in one to three years from uh, tuberculoid um, leprosy. This leprotomous leprosy was a long-lasting, devastating disease was marked by spongy, tumor-like swellings on the face and body, as you can see in the picture. 
deformity of the hands and, and feet, a kind of decomposition of the um, decomposition of the kind of webby tissues between uh, the, the bones on your fingers and, and toes and so on, loss of sensation in those parts of the body that were affected by the, the leprosy, and in addition to kind of these, these things that you could note externally, it also involved a systemic invasion of the internal organs. So there was a lot of, of pain um, that, that was associated that, that really uh, was associated with leprosy that um, was in addition to what you could see. At, at times, this, it was a strange illness because it sort of ebbs and, and flows, waxes and waves. Uh, it, it flares up and then it subsides. And at, at those times when it would flare up would cause um, high fevers and, and uh, profound pain and prostration. And it was during those periods of time that it was especially contagious. And that's why uh, in the book of Leviticus, praise be to God, you know, kept people quarantined so this kind of illness wouldn't spread among the general population. I don't, uh, I don't want to in any way make light of this because it was a horrible, horrible illness. And I'm not saying this for effect or for a laugh, but it was as close as you could get in the ancient near, to being the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of a zombie apocalypse. It was really like that. It was the walking dead. And people would, would keep their distance from people who had leprosy. The big difference, of course, between zombie apocalypse and um, leprosy in the ancient world was it was real. It was a thing. Now, there, is, uh, there are records. Uh, God had actually afflicted both Moses and his sister Miriam temporarily with leprosy. But he subsequently healed them from it. And you could read about that in Exodus chapter 4 and Numbers chapter 12. Uh, I mention that only because they were the exception that proved the rule from the time of the, God giving the Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai. From the time of the Torah, there is no record of an Israelite ever having been cleansed of this severe form of leprosy. It never happened. Uh, there is only one recorded um, instance of a person being healed from leprosy in the Old Testament, apart from um, Moses and Miriam. It's it just one Gentile, a Syrian named Naaman. And that took place during the time of the prophet Elijah. Now what's interesting is the, the priesthood had detailed instructions on what to do if someone were to be healed from leprosy. And it's all laid out in the book of Leviticus. But they never actually had a chance to follow those instructions because, as I said, from the time of the Torah, no Israelite had ever recovered from leprosy once they contracted it. Now, they would get you know, illnesses that would look like the early stages of leprosy and uh, the, the term leprosy covered a whole uh, broad body of uh, different physical ailments and, and so on, uh, skin diseases and so on. But leprosy proper, no one was ever healed from it. Um, leprosy isn't um, that much of a thing today. We don't talk about it. Um, maybe if you go on a 
trip to Hawaii or something, you might uh, learn about the leper colony that was. I don't know if it still is on uh, Lanai or not. Um, But that doesn't mean that today's text is irrelevant. Because it does uh, point to the fact that Jesus did something that was uh, impossible, that no one else had ever done before. But it tells us something that's incredibly relevant for each and every one of us who is here today. And that's this, that Jesus has a heart for hopeless people. And Jesus has a heart for people who feel like they are outcasts and feel like they are outsiders and who feel like they don't have a place in the world. And just as Jesus cared about and, and got close to and remarkably and unexpectedly um, actually not just touched, but ultimately healed people who are considered the ultimate outcasts and outsiders of their day. God continues God continues to care for, to love, to be close to, to bring healing and to bring hope to otherwise hopeless people. And I really want to lift that up as an important and a powerful truth for us today because if you are going through something right now, or if you're one of those people that may feel because of something that you have done, or because of something that has happened to you in your past, or because of the situation you find yourself in, that you're just on the outside looking in. If you're going through something like that right now, you need to know that you are not alone. And you need to know that there is a God who loves you, and that there is a God who not only wants to, but can and will bring healing and hope to your situation. And you also need to know that this is a church family where you are welcomed. Whoever you are, whatever you have done, no matter how much of an outsider you may may feel, you are welcome here. And God will bring healing and hope to your situation if you're just willing to open your heart and your mind to him. Thanks be to God. That's the first messianic miracle, healing a leper. The second of these these four messianic miracles uh, is casting out a demon from a person who couldn't speak. I know that sounds kind of narrow and specific, right? Um, But it's really important. Casting out a demon from from a mute person. Matthew uh, 12, chapter chapter 12, verses 22-23 says... Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. Now listen to this. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? Now I want you to notice the second part of that brief passage. That, that closing question. Could this be the son of David. Um, one of the things that I noticed as I was putting this message together, and, and I got really excited because I started seeing stuff in Scripture that I had never seen before. I learned things this week that I wasn't aware of, and I hope that you'll learn some stuff today. Have you ever noticed how, how um, 
that question might be asked here, but people didn't ask that question every time Jesus healed someone. Do you notice that? So why do they ask it here? Why do they ask it with, about this particular miracle? Could this be the son of David? Well, it's because this is a miracle that was believed only the Messiah, only the son of David was capable of performing. How, how is that? Why, why is that the case? Well, let me explain just a little bit, and I, I find this interesting too. In ancient Israel, uh, there were uh, different people who, uh, who were exorcists, and, and they followed kind of a formula or a pattern when they, um, when they performed their exorcisms. And it's a, a three-part uh, kind of formula. First, um, they spoke to the demon spoke to the person who was possessed, and they asked, what is your name? Number two, the demon would answer using the voice, the spirit would answer using the voice of the person who was possessed. And third, the exorcist then would cast out the demon by using its name. Now, if you want a really perfect biblical example of this, uh, there's one that you can read about in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. Jesus and his disciples had traveled over to uh, the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. It was predominantly Gentile territory. And there, they came across this guy who was living in a cemetery, living in these tombs. He was naked. He beat himself with rocks all the time. People were completely freaked out by him. Jesus um, meets him. This, this demon-possessed man. And he asks him, what is your name? And the man answers, you remember? My name is Legion, for we are many. He got the name. And he was then able to use the name to cast out the demon. By the way, when he cast out the demon, they were many. They all you know, entered into these pigs that jumped off the side of the cliff and into the sea. By the way, this, uh, this same kind of concept of being able to uh, have power over someone, uh, some evil presence by uh, knowing their name actually finds itself uh, in, uh, in folk stories and fairy tales and so on, as in the case of Rumpelstiltskin. Now the problem, as those of you who are way ahead of me have already figured out, right, is... That a mute person can't speak. And if they can't speak, they can't say the name of the demon that is possessing them. So that is what led to the belief that the sole person who would be able to set such a person free from this demon possession would have to be the Messiah. It's interesting, when Jesus frees this man from his demon-possessed bondage, uh, authorities are sent to investigate. This is another uh, fascinating kind of background that, that really makes sense of the gospel stories. You may not notice this. No matter how often you've read the gospels, it may have escaped your attention. But there was a practice in the ancient world. The, the Sanhedrin, the, the leadership of the Jewish community in Jerusalem, when someone was believed to be the Messiah, when people started getting excited about someone and said, we think this could be the son of David and so on, they would send people to investigate. And the investigation took two forms. The first form was just simple observation. They would go, they would just sit back, 
They would observe. They wouldn't say anything. They'd just gather information. And they could tell just by observing oftentimes this person is a fraud or hmm, maybe there's something to this. Um, There are instances when you read through the Gospels where uh, Jesus is performing miracles and there are Pharisees nearby who don't say anything. But you'll notice that, that one of the Gospel writers will write, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them. They didn't say anything. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, addressed them anyway. Uh, why, why did he address them? Why weren't they saying anything? Because that was the first stage. They were just observing. They could still be judgmental as all get out, but they were just observing. After they've observed, and if they felt like there was something to it, or you know, the, the movement was starting to gain steam and everything, they would actually then, uh, the second part of the investigation would involve interrogation, where they'd actually ask questions and try to discern through uh, the responses of the person and so on, whether there was something to it. When Jesus frees this man, this particular man, from his bondage, authorities typically are sent to investigate. And here's the thing. They are unable to deny that the miracle had taken place because they'd seen it. So what do they do? Well, they either have to say, gosh, this guy could be the Messiah, or they'd have to come up with an alternate explanation. And that's exactly what they did. It is only by Beelzebel, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons, they say. Beelzebel, uh, literally translated, means the Lord of the Flies. That's where that book title, that you remember that book you had to read in high school? That's where the title came from. It's only by Beelzebel, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. And it's in this context, and here's another place where the light bulb went on for me. It's in this context that Jesus goes on to say that their generation was guilty of the unpardonable sin. This concept of the unpardonable sin has uh, upset and confused Christians for uh, you know, generations and generations, probably as long as the, the church has existed. It's like, because people go, have I ever committed the unpardonable sin? One of the things that we need to know is there is no sin that God cannot forgive you. The only sin that was not forgivable, and it is the unpardonable sin, happens in the context of these messianic miracles of Jesus. It is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit particularly, and it takes this form, the willful and the knowing rejection of the Messiah, of the Savior, in light of the incontrovertible truth of the Messianic miracles. They saw Jesus performing the miracles. They knew that he had done them, and they still reject him. Now, um, you know, sometimes you read these stories about demonic possession and, and so on, and uh, to modern ears, you know, we have modern medicine and modern science and psychology and all this kind of stuff. People in the modern world rarely, if ever, think of demon possession as a source or cause of disease or, or dysfunction. Although I just read this past week that there is a huge, enormous uh, uptick and in interest in, uh, in Italy right now among people. There's a shortage of exorcists in Italy right now. The Vatican just announced this because people are, think that there's some kind of something going on there. 
we rarely, in our culture, rarely, if ever, think of, about demon possession as you know cause of, of some some strange stuff. But I have to tell you something, folks. It continues to be the case, and we know this is true. It continues to be the case that people like us find ourselves in bondage to things that are beyond our control, powers that are greater than us. We find ourselves in bondage to hurts and to habits and to hang-ups and to powers from which we are incapable of freeing ourselves. Because if we could have, if we, if we could have, we would have. We haven't because we can't. Despite all of our modern medical and psychiatric and scientific advances, you have to ask the question, why is there this enormous increase in opioid addiction, for instance? Why are people still in bondage to to alcohol and drugs and sexual addictions and pornography and all these other kinds of things that, you know, they say, I I want to stop, I wish I could be free of this, but they can't free themselves from it. I think it's because no matter what name it goes by, no matter what worldview we, uh, we happen to find ourselves in, no matter how we might articulate the problem, no matter what name it goes by, whatever our explanation for it, we continue to be hurt and we continue to be enslaved by whatever you want to call it. It's the enemy. It's the enemy. Now the good news is Jesus has authority over any power that might hurt or enslave us. He demonstrates this in this messianic miracle when he, where he is able to free a demon-possessed person who is mute, unable to speak for himself, unable to free himself, unable to do anything for himself, even given the context of the ancient Near Eastern understanding of exorcism, no one was able to help him, but Jesus could. And there's a reason why the 12-step groups that really have been almost the sole uh, movement that has been able to free people from bondage uh, to addiction and so on has its roots in, we'll call it the higher power, but anyone who's studied the movement knows it comes from Jesus. It traces its lineage back to the power of Jesus Christ to free people from bondage to that from which they cannot free themselves. So I have a question for you today. Uh, What do you need to ask God to free you from? And, you know, it may not be, it probably isn't, that by God's grace, I hope and pray, it wouldn't be opioid addiction. But you know what? Everybody is in bondage to something. Some of us just have angry spirits, and we've, we've been angry all of our lives. Some, some of us are judgmental and have never been able to free ourselves from that. Some people are, are addicted to unhealthy relationships, unhealthy patterns, and so on. What do you need to ask God to free you from? Do it. Ask Him. Ask Him. And discover God's power to set you free because he has the authority over any power that would seek to hurt you or enslave you.
This is something, if you sign up for the Encounter Weekends, you will discover. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Now, the third of the four Messianic miracles that, that we're looking at today was the healing of a man born blind. And I want to uh, highlight that particular language for you. It doesn't say healing of a man who was blind. This is the healing of a person born blind. In John chapter 9, verse 1 and following, we read, As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. Now listen to this. This is fascinating. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? There's a guy who's blind from birth. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? That he was born blind. Jesus answers, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now for us, you know, for some of us, we're going to look at that text. It's not going to make a lick of sense to us uh, or, you know, we'll try to connect the dots on our own. But if you understand the ancient Near Eastern context, the, the, the fact that Jesus is a Jewish person operating in the context of Jewish understanding and Jewish worldview and so on, all the pieces start to come together. And here's how. In the first century, when people came across somebody with an untreatable congenital condition like being born blind, they knew they couldn't fix the problem. So you know what they did instead? They fixed the blame. This is interesting because we continue to do this. I mean, people are people. Whose fault is it? You know, we can't fix it, so we've got to blame somebody. It's the Democrats. It's the Republicans. It's, you know, whatever. Whatever we're not, it's them, you know, so... Um, they couldn't fix the problem, so they, they fixed the blame. The, and in this case, they viewed birth defects as, um, as kind of a punishment from God for sin. They believed that, um, and you see this kind of reflected in some of the conversations in the book of Job. Why is Job going through all this stuff? He lost his health, he lost his family, you know. Why is he going through all this stuff? And he's got these friends who come along and says, well, it's obvious because you've done something terrible. They, they view birth defects as punishment from God, from sin. Now, how did they arrive at that conclusion? Well, uh, they did something called proof texting. I haven't really talked a lot uh, with you guys about proof texting before, but uh, it is uh, one of the ways to, uh, that people um, often inadvertently manipulate Scripture to take meaning out of it that's not really there in the first place. But it sounds like it is if you take a text out of context. You can use it for any pretext. And here's their, their proof text, Exodus 34, 7. He does not leave guilty the unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. So you have a kid here who, um, you know, we think of kids, they're innocent, you know, it's just a baby, what did they ever do? And they go, well, they didn't do anything, it was their parents who did. Now, to some of us, this just seems like, like craziness, but there, it actually does make a certain amount of sense. Uh, and let me give you an example of that. You know, here in the United States, we're still suffering from the sin of slavery that was committed by our forefathers centuries ago. We're suffering from that. People continue to die because of it. There is a social disruption 
Uh, it's the sins of the fathers being you know, visited upon subsequent generations and so on. But they made it even more specific. See, it's not just when, when we find it in Exodus, it really is a kind of about these social sins and everything. But here they're saying, gosh, kid can be born blind because of something that their parents or grandparents or whatever did. That was one explanation, and it sort of explains why they would ask the question, who sinned, this person or their parents? What about this person? How could a kid, how could an innocent child uh, be blamed for their blindness? Who sinned, this person or their, their parents? Well, um, people at that time also believed uh, that children could be born with birth defects because of their own potential possible inclinations towards sin that were present even in the womb. So let me try to explain this to you. You know how there's some people, you, you just meet them and they're, they're just um, kind of mean-spirited? You know people like that probably, right? They're just kind of always like that. And then there are other people, just a joy to be around. They're always so kind and all this kind of stuff. Well, you know, in, according to this ancient worldview and stuff, that's kind of hardwired into us from the time, you know, even before our birth and so on. There's actually a, a term for it. It continues to be used in Jewish tradition today. You can look it up in, in your version notes. They believe that everybody had either a yetzer hara. The word ra means uh, evil. A yetzer hara, a spirit, a tendency toward evil, or a yetzer hatov, and the word tov is uh, it means good, an inclination toward good or an inclination toward evil uh, that was present from the moment of conception. And that's what helps make sense then of the disciples seeming for us really kind of bizarre question: Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now. The thing is, um, in the ancient world, and today, there are examples of people recovering from a blindness that came about after they were born. I'm an example of one. Ten years or so, I'm just guessing, I can't remember exactly when it was, um, I had something, a condition called a vitreous detachment. Way better than the retinal detachment, where the you know nerve actually becomes detached, but uh, that was a vitreous uh, detachment. I had a little tear in the back of my eye, and somehow blood got into the vitreous humor inside that's in that gelatinous stuff that's inside everybody's eyeballs. And be, once the blood got in there, my my everything turned dark. It, it began with these dark floaters and flashes of light, and then after that, my entire sight was lost. I was blind completely in one eye. And I, I had a little bit of laser surgery, uh, and they, they corrected that, and the, I got my sight back. Sometimes it would just come, uh, for certain people with similar conditions, their sight would just come, uh, come back. The thing would sort of heal itself on its own. So there are examples of people recovering from blindness that comes about after you're born, but... Only the, only the Messiah could heal a person who was born blind from birth. And part of that was because um, of the understanding that, um, you know, as they, they healed their, their sight, they're also um, freeing them from sin. 
So John 9.32 tells us, and once again, it really helps us see this truly is a messianic miracle. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. And what happens? Uh, here again we see the, the, uh, the healing of the blind man leads to an investigation. And the, inve- the, the people that are investigating, it's fascinating. I don't have time to go into it, but go home, read John chapter 9, uh, and you'll see what these investigations look like. Because first, these, uh, these uh, representatives from the Sanhedrin come down and they, they interview the man born blind, and they ask him, and he says, yes, I was born blind, and they're not sure they believe him. So then they go to his parents and say, hey, we were just talking to this guy. He says you're, he's your son. He says he was born blind. Is this true? And the, the parents say, yeah, it's true, but we don't want to get involved. Go ask him. Then they start asking other people and so on, and, uh, and they, they're very, very skeptical and so on. They investigate to see if Jesus really has healed the man born blind. But you know what? The conclusion, you can tell from the story, the conclusion is already predetermined. And their conclusion is this. Jesus is a fraud. Don't know how he did it, you know, but he's a fraud, and worse, he's misleading the people. But, and here's where there's meaning for us, for people who have receptive hearts and receptive minds, the truth is Jesus really does open our eyes, and Jesus really does dispel the darkness And Jesus really does help us to see the truth. And just read through through John chapter 9. One of the things that John chapter 9, in my judgment, um, teaches is that um, we can choose to be blind if we want to. We can close our eyes in face of the truth about who Jesus is. And why we would want to do that, you know, is anybody's guess. But just as some people who otherwise have sight make themselves blind by refusing to see the truth, you know, when Jesus enters into the the lives of people who have open minds and open hearts, he opens us up and helps us see what's there. Fourth and final messianic miracle was Jesus raising a dead man, Lazarus, after, after three days, on the fourth day, in other words. Jewish people believe that a dead person's spirit stayed with the body for three days. Um, and it just sort of hovered around and so on. But after, and, and, and you can understand how they would, would believe that because, you know, sometimes a person will appear to be dead, but, um, you know, maybe they just had to, their metabolism slowed down or, or whatever, and they appear to come back to life or whatever. But a person who's been dead for three days, truly dead, the body at this point begins to break down and, and decomposi- decomposition uh, takes place. And once that happens, only one person was believed to have the power to undo um, the otherwise irreversible damage done by death. And that was the Messiah. For me, uh, John chapter 11, it's, it's been filled with kind of questions I've had you know, from the time I became a Christian. Why, when Jesus hears that his friend Lazarus is sick, why does he take his dear sweet time getting to him? You're, have you ever wondered that? 
It says he actually stays for two days before he goes to, to his friend's side. And by that time, he's dead. It explains this inexplicable two-day delay. It helps us understand the gruesome note that, that John records in John chapter 11 about the odor of death. But Lord, Lazarus' sister says, but Lord, by this time there's a bad odor for he has been there for four days. Somebody told me, I, I didn't check this. Somebody said that the King James Version, he stinketh. Maybe, I, I don't know. I'll have to... <laughs> but undoing, listen Undoing death was a miracle that no one could dismiss. Because dead people don't come back to life. It was a miracle no one could dismiss, an incontrovertible proof that Jesus was the Messiah promised by God. And it's this last messianic miracle that, that really highlights for us how Jesus is able to do the impossible. This is a message that somebody maybe here needs to, to hear today. He's able to do the impossible because his power is incomparable. And if you are facing what feels to you like a hopeless situation, don't forget these messianic miracles of Jesus. Nothing in all creation is able to separate you from the love of God, which is ours through Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 starts listing all the things that can get in, in the way and can cause us to imagine that there's something that can separate us from, from the love of God. You know what he starts with? Death. He says not even death itself. This is why we celebrate Easter. This is why we worship on Sunday mornings. To remember the resurrection of Jesus his power over death. Jesus has a heart for outcasts and outsiders. He has authority over anything that threatens to hurt or enslave us. He opens our eyes. He dispels darkness. He shows us the truth. And no matter how impossible situation may seem, he can bring hope. He can bring hope to every one of us. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or even imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Thanks be to God.